the Vietnam War and the push for US involvement was a result of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. A lie. The Iraq War famously is a result of lies. Wars in Somalia are a result of lies. The Second World War and the German invasion of Poland was a result of carefully constructed lies. That is war by media. Let us ask ourselves of the complicit media, which is the majority of the mainstream press, what is the average death count attributed to each journalist? Okay, that was Julian Assange uh, there at the top. I know you've heard that before. That was at a, an anti-war rally in London in 2010. And then, of course, Anton Karras, the third man. I like to give him credit every time I play that theme song, which I have now for, I think, six or seven years. By the way, I'm Randy Credico. This is Randy Credico live on the fly here on the Progressive Radio Network. Today's show... Uh, will also be seen at uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom.com on Rokefin and other platforms as well. Too many to mention. Uh, today is an Assange Countdown to Freedom special. Now, we were supposed to have Stefania Morizzi on today, along with Nils Melzer doing a special introduction. Uh, she's got a new book out, it's a bestseller and she was doing an exclusive interview with us today, but she had some family issues in Milan, so she got on a plane from Rome to Milan. Uh, we could have done it uh, tomorrow or the next day, but we'll do it for next Wednesday, not Wednesday, but Monday, uh, the 27th. At any rate, uh, we've got uh, a great show today, what we are going to do today, and I've been wanting to do this a long time, uh, and that is to play excerpts from all three, the best of our interviews with Julian Assange. We did three interviews with him between 2016, 2017, and uh, they were long interviews. And uh, so we're gonna play 10, 12 minutes from each interview. I want everyone to be reminded how brilliant, how cogent, how smart, and how important Julian Assange is, was then and is right now. And probably the reason why they don't want him talking, they don't want him operating. But listen to these three interviews, excerpts, and you get a pretty good range there, uh, you know, view of, of the intellect and, and, and the articulate uh, quality. I mean, this guy is so articulate and uh, so brilliant, uh, and uh, I, I figured it's time to uh, play uh, these excerpts. So maybe it was a blessing in disguise, uh, Stefani having to fly 
uh, to Milan, but we'll have her next week along with some commentary by Nils Melzer. Um, what else? There are a lot of things going on. Steve Donziger, of course, on October 1st will be sentenced and we need a big crowd out there at 500 Pearl Street. I know that Roger Waters is going to be there. Uh, he's always there. Roger Waters, who, by the way, uh, has been a uh, real godsend to this show. Uh, we were running out of, because we have a labor-intensive show here, and uh, Roger Waters came in, and we're good. We're good now through Christmas. So uh, there'll be no more passing the hat around until... Uh, you know, the new year, probably. Uh, so he'll be there. Susan Sarandon will be there. And uh, I'll be there. And uh, Bianca will be there. And uh, many others. So that's October 1st at 8 a.m., 500 Pearl Street. Uh, what else is happening? Well, what else is happening are two big comedy events. And the, the name of the event for both places is Stand-Ups for Assange. Uh, in New York City, the 24th, the Sunday of October. In DC, the 16th of October, uh, in a place called the Tabard Inn. In New York City, it's at St. Mark's Theater. At St. Mark's. Theater 80 at St. Mark's. I'm not going to do this again. Theater 80 at St. Mark's, okay? Uh, just um, uh, send me an email if you're interested in going. And that would be at AssangeCountdown at gmail.com. AssangeCountdown at gmail.com. We got Lee Camp. Uh, we've got uh, Katie Halper. We got Max Blumenthal. We got Margaret Kimberly. Uh, we got Margaret Ratner Kunstler. We got the Raphael DeLugoff uh, Ragtime Quintet. And uh, you got me and much more. All right. So uh, look, uh, look it up. Uh, Look up uh, the Assange comedy specials coming up. Stand up for Assange, both in D.C. and in New York City. And uh, write to me, AssangeCountdown at gmail.com. All right. Now, during these interviews, by the way, we're going to um, be talking to him, and he's going to refer to uh, something that took place in January or February 2016, and uh, we're talking about Assange, and that is the United Nations um, uh, special uh, crew on arbitrary uh, detention, and the name of the guy is Christophe Pichot, where they determined that Assange was being illegally uh, detained and deserved to be released right away and compensated. So we're going to, his name is Christophe, Christophe for show, I believe, and we're going to play what he said back then, because Assange is going to refer to this. Now, this is from the UN guy uh, from January 2016. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has been arbitrarily detained by Sweden and the United Kingdom since his arrest in London on 7 December 2010 as a result of the legal action taken against him by both governments, the expert panel called on the Swedish and British authorities to end Mr. Assange's deprivation of liberty. I think the recommendation is quite clear. Respect his physical integrity and freedom of movement and afford him the right to compensation. Okay, well, 
They didn't listen. The Brits and the US and all the others involved, the Swedes and the Ecuadorian new government, uh, uh, Linda Moreno, uh, they, 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 they just like, you know, said, screw it. And no matter what we throw at them, uh, they don't care. You know, whether it be Mills Melzer, Amnesty, Reporters Without Borders, uh, UC Global Scandal, no matter what it is, uh, they, they just continue because they don't want him operating uh, for some reason. And uh, so the struggle continues. And there's a documentary coming out, by the way. I spoke to Gabriel Shipton uh, earlier today. And um, he, of course, is the brother of Julian. And he's got a documentary coming out that features the struggle by uh, Julian's father, uh, Gabriel's father, John Shipton, and uh, Stella Morris, uh, Mr. Assange's partner and the mother of his two uh, kids. So uh, that is coming out soon. It's called Ithaca. And we're going to play uh, what's called a teaser. This is not the trailer. This is a teaser uh, from the uh, up and coming uh, soon uh, documentary called Ithaca. Now listen to this. What's at stake? Uh, for Julian, it's life. For you guys, any prestige that you can gather as a journalist protects you. So this will be the end. Nobody ever again will be able to get the assistance of 100,000 people worldwide to defend them. 100 lawyers, six jurisdictions in order to defend Julian Assange. It'll never happen again. If, if he goes down, so will journalism. We will never accept that journalism is a crime in this country or any other. Let's not forget that US agents plotted to kill Julian on British soil. Their illegal operations even targeted our six-month-old baby. Julian's freedom is coupled to all our freedom, and our freedoms are lost in the blink of an eye. I ask you all to shout louder, lobby harder, until he is free. I call on the President of the United States to end this now. Let our little boys have their father. Free Julian, free the press, free us all. Okay, so if you get a chance, uh, try to find that documentary when it comes out. Of course, I'll be sending it around everywhere and uh, try to attend no matter where it is, uh, the opening uh, of that documentary, somewhere online. And if it costs money, pay it, because it goes for a good cause. All right, so uh, I guess that's just about it. Um, we're gonna go here uh, to one of the, the very first interviews with uh, Julian Assange was August 25th, 2016 on the Pacifica Network. 
And um, we're going to play uh, that excerpt right now. And uh, we talked about a range of things uh, beginning, it was prior to the 2016 election. And uh, we talk about the election and, and Hillary and uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, Trump, and he had very good analysis. So uh, we're going to play that. And he talks about uh, this joke about Roger Stone being a back channel and some other things. So we're going to play that. And when we come back, We'll introduce the next clip. Sitting in that room there, looking at this election uh, in the United States, what is your overview of this election in the United States? If I may just get away from it. Well, in, in some ways, it's super interesting. In other ways, it's, it's, it's fairly boring. Uh, you've got two candidates uh, deeply disliked by both the population, by both uh, groups of population. Hillary Clinton, who's kind of a predictable boring, um, uh, liberal war hawk, uh, although I think probably now you have to question whether she's a liberal war hawk because she's brought all the neocons onto her side as well. She's uh, close to Henry Kissinger, you know. Well, it's, it's much worse than that. She's like Robert Kagan, and uh, who's the wife of Victoria Newland, who was a, one of her best buddies at the State Department, who was behind um, uh, a lot of the problems with uh, Ukraine, uh, has... Uh, piled up with her, has made um, fundraising dinners for her. Uh, William uh, Crystal right. uh, has also endorsed called her. everyone to vote for, endorsed her, vote for Hillary. Uh, there's about 30 now. Um, you... Basically, that, that, that all that neo, nearly all the neocons that were behind um, the Iraq war uh, have now backed Hillary. So uh, you... that's very, that's, that tells you something very interesting. It's, it's, it tells you something about Hillary Clinton, but it, it also tells you something about Donald Trump, and it tells you something about uh, the neocons. So the neocon sense of identity and their interests are not strongly co-aligned with the Republican Party. Right. So they don't they don't view because I've believed naively that the neocons were deeply Republican, uh, and why you know they, if their interests differed to the candidate. Donald Trump, for whatever reasons, they might not aggressively push him. Uh, that's very different to crossing the floor uh, and, if you like, backing the enemy as far as the, uh, the Republicans are concerned. So all along, the neocons were not really Republican. They were something else, and they had a different agenda. You uh, think that if she wins, uh, she's going to continue uh, the warmongering policies uh, that have basically been going on for about the last 40 years. Uh, you know, she's... Unfortunately, I think she'll accelerate it. Uh, there'll be a, a moderately significant uptick uh, compared to um, her under the Obama administration. But remember this period uh, from 2009-2012 of, of Hillary Clinton being Secretary of State in the Obama administration, uh, uh, Produced a lot of conflict. Hillary Clinton got out at the end, and so John Kerry had to deal with it. But if if you look at the successes uh, by John Kerry, diplomatic successes um, at his term in office compared to Hillary Clinton's, there's a world of difference. Now, to be fair to her, you could say some of the reason for this is that Obama is trying to move into his legacy phase, uh, and after having, you know, satisfied the. Uh, broadly speaking, the military-industrial complex in the United States and a, and a bunch of other powerful actors, 
he's now moving into a position to shore up his uh, uh, historical reputation uh, after he leaves office. So John Kerry might have been given a, a little more reign um, than Hillary Clinton was. But, yeah, there's, there's significant diplomatic successes under John Kerry in terms of uh, peacemaking, dealmaking, reduction of tension. Uh, but uh, Hillary Clinton's time in office saw the opposite. Right. Uh, well, uh, so you think going forward, going forward, it's going to be I mean, a continu- even though she's on, in a week. That's just analysis on on that's just analysis on results in office. Um, but there's a lot of other indicators. What she has said in her emails, the types of people that she uh, chooses to associate, the types of people who endorse her, that the her positions uh, on legislation and uh, on war, her being the leading. Um, her not only being the leading voice in the administration to bring about uh, the bombing of Libya and the destruction of the Libyan state, uh, but uh, being uh, towards the end of 2011, uh, so uh, proud of that effort uh, that within inside the State Department she produced or had her staff produce a what we call um, uh, a Libya brag sheet. Uh, it's it's all the which and what they call a TikTok. Uh, it's the chronological um, description of how she was the central figure uh, in bringing about the destruction of the Libyan state. And I'm trying to think of, is there anything that she did that was good during her tenure as Secretary of State? I can't think of anything. Mm, what about I'm Honduras? I'm sure there must be something. <laughs> I'm sure there must be something. It, it's, it's, you know, politicians sell themselves and, and the State Department sells itself. So there's already an oversupply of uh, uh, an institution bringing out her good points. So, of course, investigative journalists concentrate on the on the negatives. Um, you know, I've been uh, cr- none come to mind. I'm sure there must be some. Well, I can't think of any. I've I've written articles about her. You know, she was uh, running for Senate here in 2000, and now she pushed herself as this big progressive. When it comes to civil rights, Black Lives Matter, you know, she lives just a mile away from two prisons, female prisons, Bedford Hills and Taconic prisons. She never once dropped by, not one time did she drop by to say hello to the prisoners, and they're 94% black and Latino in both of those prisons, maximum security prisons, just a mile away. And so I yeah. get heat. I get a lot of heat that I, by by attacking Hillary, which I do here whenever I have a chance at this radio station, I get a lot of heat that I'm actually helping out Donald Trump by attacking Hillary Clinton. I mean, this is the Democratic Party's problem that they chose a very weak candidate with a real sordid background. Do you, I mean you are getting a lot of heat? You know, people are saying, well, Julian's basically going to help Donald Trump. Is there really a difference between these two? I will, yes, there are differences between them. Uh, In your mind? The, there are significant differences uh, between them as individuals. I, I think, um, as it speaks in both directions, uh, the, the issue, I think, is more uh, the Republican Party and how much of how look individual uh presidents once they are, are in office uh and are established don't really do much 
most of their time, they are just taking um, the briefing sheets that are given to them, uh, reading them to teleprompters, the briefing sheets that they're given for meetings, or then sometimes they are given two or three uh, uh, alternatives uh, by the secretaries and members of cabinet and asked to choose between them. So, you know, uh, it's not like these the alternatives that, that are presented to them are, are diametrically opposed. So that they're alternatives plucked from a very narrow pond. And where are they produced from? Well, they're, they're produced from the major U.S. corporations uh, and their ability to inject uh, uh, proposals uh, to to go into governmental decision-making and lobby for uh, particular ones to be selected, and from the bureaucracies, uh, the CIA, Department of Homeland Security, the Army, Pentagon, Veterans Affairs, etc. Um, so uh, uh, there's just one point where the candidate really does make a difference, and that is in the appointment phase. Uh, so there's about 3,500 uh, positions that are appointed uh, in the few months um, of the government coming into office. Um, and so Hillary Clinton will select certain cronies, people she owes favour, etc. Uh, and those people will be appointed to various positions and they in turn will recommend to her other appointments. Uh, and similarly, with Donald Trump, uh, he will be appointing a whole bunch of people that come out of you know, his real estate network, people he's met in the entertainment industry, new friends that he's made during this campaign. And where there are gaps uh, in his own personal network of trust, he will be feeding from uh, what the Republican Party offers him. Do you think he's really trying to win, or do you think he's tanking it? I think it's a I think it's a very interesting question uh, whether it was a serious campaign in the beginning uh, whether you know there there are allegations I don't I don't have any evidence it's amusing to speculate whether uh, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton who allegedly spoke to spoke to him about whether he should run given that they have a close association in the past um, that, that Clinton's might have thought it would be helpful to have Donald Trump in there. I think it. I think it is clear now, given the amount of uh, effort that he's putting into things, the amount of time that it's it's consuming, that he's either got, he's either uh, was genuinely uh, always in, intending to run as far as possible, or he has become trapped into it. Right. Well, I uh, have. I'm, I'm not like a big conspiracy person, but I got to tell you, here it feels like watching this that he's part of the team because she, he's about the only person that she could possibly beat with her record. Yeah, you know? I mean, I think that's that's pretty true. Although that amongst those 17 Republican candidates, there was a lot of chaff. Uh, there were also some maybe Rand poor, poor, poor characters. Poor candidates, not not in terms of saying so much the uh, very inflammatory, divisive things that some, Trump says that alienates whole groups of the population. Uh, I mean, some of the people but, around him, Rudy but, Giuliani, uh, this guy yeah. Chris Christie, this sheriff from Arizona, this nutcase racist sheriff yeah. Arpaio. Uh, it's very difficult 
to, to like him, you know. But there are other candidates. There's Gary Johnson and there's Jill Stein. Jill Stein called you a hero. What do you think about her campaign? Well, I think she's clearly a, bra- a brave woman, uh, and the Greens are brave this election uh, by, you know, sticking up for, for WikiLeaks and its right to publish and its imprisoned sources and so on. That's, I mean, obviously, um, we hear that as something that's important. Uh, it's a it's actually a really good signal that that is possible uh, in the U.S. political debate. I mean, of course, whether it's possible for Jill, someone like Jill Stein to be elected uh, is another matter. Well, it's almost uh, impossible but, for her to but be elected. She has said these things, and there, are, there is some reportage. Uh, it's, not, it's not being smashed in everyone's face like the Trump uh, and Clinton um, campaign coverage, but there is a little bit. One of Trump's, uh, one of Trump's supporters... Uh, Roger Stone, uh, who I know, I actually know Roger Stone. He was on this show, uh, you know, go figure, a couple of weeks back. But uh, he bandied your name. But then, of course, he backtracked and said he didn't know. He didn't have any communication with you. But, uh, you know, he yeah, does I toss mean, things Ro- around. Roger Stone Roger Stone is a, a rather canny spin master. Yes. Uh, and we have not had least. any communication with him whatsoever yes uh i i do imagine his position he wants to i mean he has said nice things about us i think he said that i was a hero so okay that's nice we appreciate that kind of thing um so i'm not minded to criticize him too much for doing something that any kind of political operative would do which is basically to try and get in on the uh the the um get in on our publications in some way by suggesting that he had something to do with it uh, but actually, no, it's it's all our hard work and the hard work of our sources. Right, and you are doing a... Uh, Republicans have not helped at all. Uh, um, if, if they want to donate money like anyone else, yes, that's they a can thing. do that. We're, we're, we'd welcome that. Well, uh, before... uh, if they want to give us accurate <laughs> documents, which we will check, of course, on the Clinton campaign, we'd and... welcome that. And similarly, we'd welcome it from... The Clintons or Stein or whoever. Maybe you'll get some money from the uh, CGI, the Clinton Global Initiative. Have you? Uh, yeah, I doubt applied? it. Now, let me uh, say, but while we're there, uh, people who want to, we're talking to Julian Assange at WikiLeaks in the Ecuadorian Embassy in London. It's eleven o'clock there. Is it uh, ten o'clock? Ten thirty? It's very hot. It's the hottest August in London ever. It's the hottest. Uh, What's what? Yeah. What do we have? Celsius thirty-three no uh, in the embassy. You have no air conditioning. I got to tell you, you look great. I see you on television uh, with Jake Tapper the other day. Uh, how do you maintain your energy and and your health? I mean, you work out uh, out of the embassy. Well, it's I you know an exercise regime. It's you have to do these types of things, but um, it's I like uh, I you know I am in love with. Uh, understanding the world and sharing that understanding with other people. Uh, it's a bit hard to d- describe how much I, I'm in love with that um, and have been for many years. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, when you're in a conflict, uh, when people are trying to you know, malign your work or engaging banking blockades, or as they are doing, attempting to send me and other people to prison, uh, it, yeah, it, it's... It's very stimulating, and so uh, you, you feel energetic under these circumstances I mean, I'm, when you're I'm being attacked. I'm sure you do. I'm sure it must be an impossible situation day in and day out 
but you've uh, done an incredible job. You're, you know, just a remarkable example of strength and uh, and hope. And I know it's you're taking a huge sacrifice when you got into this business. You knew it was possible that something like this would happen eventually. Am I right? Sure. I actually expected it. Not exactly this, but something close to this. Uh, yeah, a couple of years earlier, actually, I thought it would happen. Well, here I just saw the UN has formally found. I think it was actually in February that uh, that you were unlawfully detained uh, by Sweden and the UK. Can you uh, expand on that? Yes, and uh, February five, uh, the United Nations formally found that I am being illegally detained by Sweden and the UK and must be immediately released and compensated. Um, so that's obviously a hugely significant uh, win for us. Uh, the UK is, uh, and, and Sweden so far uh, have actively defied uh, that ruling. Um, they have paid some diplomatic consequences for it. Uh, hopefully those consequences uh, will increase over time. Okay, how good was that? So the entire interview uh, you can uh, see actually at Anonymous Scandinavia's uh, YouTube account. Uh, that was uh, an interview on radio that he turned into a video. Um, now, the next one as well is Anonymous Scandinavia. If you want to see the whole interview, you'll have to find it. I believe it's still there uh, at Anonymous Scandinavia uh, on YouTube. But here's an excerpt, uh, and this is the very last interview. It was a long interview. Uh, it was an hour interview. It was with him and his partner, Stella Morris. Uh, but uh, we're just going to play parts with him. Uh, and uh, it begins by talking about uh, Kent State. Uh, and then uh, we talk about Russiagate. And then he tells a story about a guy spending 55 years in prison uh, who is a big fan of Julian. You cannot uh, believe that uh, last story here. So we're going to go to that uh, and come back and then have one more uh, segment of uh, interviews uh, with Julian Assange. We'll be right back. Uh, Julian, I just want to make a, just a couple of observations first, and that is... Um, this woman called me last night. Uh, her name is Laura Krauss. Uh, she's a sister of Allison Krauss, who was the uh, uh, one of the four that were killed uh, on May 4th, 1970 at Kent State. And she, murdered in cold blood, yeah, shall we say. Right, murdered in cold blood by the National Guard. That's Dennis Bernstein. We'll get to you in a second. All right, so uh, she uh, said that WikiLeaks, and she really thanked God and had a lot of gratitude for WikiLeaks, uh, preserving and getting some very, very uh, important documents. And I just thought I'd convey that to you. Uh, that Are you aware of that? I am, <clears throat> I am aware, even as an Australian, this important part of, uh, of U.S. history. But, uh, no, we didn't, interestingly, we didn't intend, uh, if you like, to specifically publish Kent State documents. It's part of one of our big archives of cable documents, uh, called the Kissinger Cables uh, from the 1970s. But we know that uh, when you take the internal communications of the State Department or another major powerful organization, that it tends to touch uh, on nearly everything. And the public's ability to uh, 
spot connections in your material uh, that are relevant at the time that you publish it and after, or in this case, even before, uh, greatly outstrips your own, that the pub- public intelligence is much greater. And so I'm always filled with extreme irritation uh, with those journalists who sit upon hordes of uh, national historical treasure, you know, how, how our human institutions in a variety of countries have actually behaved, uh, because the public's ability to understand it and connect it to their own personal histories, take it and use it in litigation, use it uh, in political campaigns, is much greater uh, than the rather narrow and relatively uh, provincial character of any particular journalist uh, or editor, uh, including me. All right. I, I, I thank you, Julian, for uh, staying on as long as you have. Dennis, why don't you get one last quick question in there, and uh, we'll bring on uh, the... All right. I don't know if this is quick, but uh, and it, maybe it's a naive question, but would you characterize or consider... Well, Dennis, Dennis, you know what they yeah. say. Uh, <clears throat> uh, better to be naive and do something because uh, the realists have left the world in the situation that it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. So I will just uh, stumble towards the truth here if I can uh, and ask you if you consider the DNC... Informa- flow out of the uh, the information flow out of the DNC, a hack or a leak? <laughs> well, that's interesting. This is a, a sourcing question. So uh, there's lots of different alleged flows actually out of the DNC over a two-year period. If you read rather closely, uh, seemingly by maybe five different uh actors of different kinds, state actors, domestic actors, it's not entirely clear. These are, these are statements coming out of U.S. intelligence. If you, if you uh, read closely, actually I haven't seen those repeated in 2007, but they were earlier on in, in uh, 2016. So we don't talk about sourcing in that way. What we talk about is our publications uh, and that they're completely accurate uh, and that our publications did not come from a state actor. We haven't said anything else about them, and we probably, probably won't say anything else about them. We'll have to, we have to see how things develop, but probably we won't say anything else but that. Because if we start fleshing in more details, uh, it makes it easier to catch our sources, which we obviously don't want. All right, I wasn't going to ask you that question, but I wanted to ask you this one, Julian. Um, we'll let you uh, get off on this one, get out with this one, and that is uh, a lot of the letters that you get. You were talking to me uh, the other day about one one contribution from somebody in a prison. Can you tell us about that, and then we'll move on here. Okay, Randy, this is, this is the last question. You're, you're sneaky. Uh, well, I, I would, I, in some ways, I would... I don't know, yeah, I don't know whether I can name the guy, so I'm not going to. Uh, he probably does deserve to be named. But I, I get quite a lot of letters from prisoners. I don't know why they're writing to me. I, I've been detained in one form or another without charge for seven years, including in violation of two UN rulings. So I don't know why they're looking for me for legal advice. Um, 
but one one letter particularly sticks in my mind is from the United States from a 22 year old man uh, he'd been sentenced to 55 years in prison uh, and you think when I in fact read the letter I thought 55 years okay he's a murderer of some kind no uh, he's a, a young punk uh, and police were picked Police were picking on him, uh, and you know may, maybe he was a, a robber as well. I don't know, but yeah, he's been chased by the cops downtown, uh, and so chasing him, he pointed towards them and he fired a shot, and it missed the cop. That's it. That's it. I che- I checked out the case with the records, with what was in the newspaper. His description is completely accurate. That's it. In prison for 55 years, uh, attempted murder of a cop, uh, unlawful possession of firearm, uh, firing a firearm within city limits, etc. 55 years. Wow. 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 And he made a $10 contribution as well to WikiLeaks, I believe. Yeah, and, and he, I, I was astounded because I, I opened a letter uh, and there was a check to me, from the Department of Justice. Right. He, and uh, <laughs> given this uh, enormous grand jury proceeding that they're trying to, um, well, that they're try- trying to prosecute uh, me and uh, potentially my staff uh, with espionage and a whole lot of other things uh, relating to our um, releases on the Iraq, Afghan war, and so on. Uh, I thought this was quite interesting to see that the this institution that's trying to prosecute me was sending me a check. But it, it, it turned out it was um, this prisoner had sent me uh, $10. Wow. And the prisoners, um, you know, they can't access normal bank accounts, so the DOJ has little accounts for them, and they put their money in the DOJ account. So when they want to send money somewhere, it comes from the DOJ. That's what I might call a bad check. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, listen, I, I'm sorry I snuck I, I look I look quite a lot into his case. Yeah. It it seems like he has no appeal opportunities. Wow. From what, from what I can determine. And, unless there's, you know, amnesty or some significant changing of the law. Uh, his, well, yeah. I'm going to look into that yeah. case here. Yeah, luck. I'm going to look into that case right here. We are going to let you go. Finally, we kept you overtime here. So thank you very much, Julian. We're going to say goodbye. Thank you, right Julian. Now. Thank you. Thanks. You know, free speech outfits right. have to look out for each other. Okay, so that was uh, the last time we interviewed Julian Assange. Of course, uh, five or six months later, he was totally shut down. Uh, the second time we interviewed him, the second out of three, was April 11th, uh, 2017. He had done... Earlier the day before, uh, Amy Goodman's show, Democracy Now!, and he got sandbagged by this reporter by the name of Alan Nairn. Uh, and it was a very um, unfortunate, uncomfortable, and unseemly thing to have done uh, to uh, Julian. Uh, so I got a call that night, and he said, I'd like to do your show the next day. And so I said, sure. 
I had John Pilger already booked for that next day. I told John, he says, well, then drop me and just put Julian on. I said, no, we've been planning this. I'll put you both on. You'll do the first half. You'll do the second half and you'll listen. And if you want to ask questions, uh, you could ask questions. Well, what happened was he did the first 35, 40 minutes. And then Julian was on for 20. He didn't say a thing. He just listened. But at the end, he capped it. Uh, with a statement that I've used many times on this show at the very at the cold opening. Uh, so you'll recognize what he says at the very end, and that'll be the end of this particular interview when you hear John Pilger make that statement. But uh, we talked about the persecution of Assange, why they are doing it, talking about Wood Julian himself, and he gives us uh, a very uh, cogent um, uh, display of his knowledge of uh, Swedish history and how reactionary the country really is. You got to listen to this. Uh, he, he, it's so good, uh, this interview. And I was hoping we could have continued into the news hour back then, uh, but we couldn't. And uh, but I think uh, you'll, you'll enjoy this. And uh, and after this, we'll be right back uh, to say goodbye. Also from Australia, uh, Julian, Assa Julian Assange. Thank you, Julian, for uh, joining us today. Are you hey, Randy. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you for being part of this. You know, I've been trying to get you for about six months now, and uh, I'm thrilled that you are on. I have the greatest journalist on the planet and the greatest publisher on the planet at the same time, and both are from Australia. Uh, you've known John for a long time? I, I've certainly known of him for, for many decades, and I've known him personally for maybe eight years now. Uh, and he's been a, a big supporter in the, in the situation uh, that I'm going through in this country. Yes. And uh, let's, let's uh, talk about that, uh, what you're going through. A lot of people really don't understand why you are there. What did you do to be there and be a political prisoner inside that embassy? So it's interesting. Uh, do you need to do something in order to have, uh, in order, order to have a kind of modern interstate system uh, make life very difficult for you uh, and detain you without charge? In my case, for seven years, uh, I'm not sure you do. Uh, that's part of the problem when justice becomes arbitrary. Uh, the system doesn't just strike out uh, at its critics. Uh, the institutions that comprise it are also fearsomely stupid, uh, especially where uh, they're engaged in secrecy because um, excellence is not uh, promoted by secrecy because poor work uh, can be covered up or uh, poorly performing contractors um, are not favoured over uh, under uh, uh, contractors that perform well. So I'm not sure you, you do actually need to do anything wrong. The system can just come down uh, on your head uh, and you can, be, you can be swept up in it for decades. In my particular case, of course, uh, I um, have rather specialised in my life since being a young teenager in provoking the hell out of it. Uh, so, so I do kind of under, understand that it's, in that sense, uh, 
be expected in a sort of world that I am living in, which is uh, exposing these large and powerful organizations. And of course, by, by definition, if they're large and powerful, they have an ability to uh, suppress their critics in one way or another. And yeah. I, I wouldn't say that it, it's particularly about uh, suppressing me individually, but the example is, is they're perceived as terrible. Uh, it's like Cuba itself was, uh, at least post-Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, strategically not very in, important. Uh, but as an example to the rest of Latin America, uh, it was extremely important in encourage, encouraging uh, defiance of um, the will of the U.S. government and the various security complexes that make it up. Do you, uh, uh, Julian Assange, uh, believe that there is, I mean, I do. I mean, you, you mentioned this yesterday on another show about the uh, modern uh, McCarthyism. Could you uh, elaborate on that? I, I should answer your previous press question properly, because uh, I'm sure your listeners would be irritated. Um, as I answer this question so often, it becomes a bit boring to just kind of look at, at the facts. Um, but... WikiLeaks uh, started about a decade ago, uh, and we publish uh, authentic materials, official materials from all around the world. Um, the U.S. produces an unusual number of them, uh, so we tend to publish more from the U.S. than from other countries. Uh, and that's easily understandable when you realize that the U.S. has the most amount of money going into uh, the secret state. So there's more than 5 million people in the United States with security clearances, uh, well over uh, 1.3 million with top secret security clearances. So that effectively is a state within a state. And then the cultural values expressed uh, in the United States, it, its own uh, self-story uh, has some honourable cultural traditions, and those come, come in conflict with the reality of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, so the tension between the two uh, produces incentives for whistleblowers and, and dissidents to emerge. Then simply the, the scale of it uh, means that quite a number of them do emerge. Um, and so a grand jury was started in 2010, um, what the U.S. government internally called a whole-of-government investigation, criminal and intelligence investigation, against me and other people in WikiLeaks. Uh, one of our alleged sources, uh, Chelsea Manning, was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Uh, he was uh, severely abused uh, in 2011-2012. Uh, UN Special Rapporteur on Torture formally found that he had been subject to cruel and inhumane uh, treatment. Uh, that grand jury uh, continues on in, in my case, uh, and the U.S. government has just announced that it has expanded it to also include our recent CIA uh, publications. It's run by the National Security Division of the DOJ and by the Criminal uh, Division of the DOJ. It's a, it's a big thing. It's it spread agents all over the world, uh, chartered private jets to Iceland, pulled people back to be secretly interrogated, coercively forced people uh, to testify.
it's it's a you know there's an extensive series of legal maneuvers by my lawyers uh, and the lawyers of uh, Chelsea Manning and also some NGOs in the United States to to try and check uh, that ongoing process. And in response to that, uh, the government of Ecuador gave me political asylum in 2012, and there's a, a variety of complications of other legal processes. Uh, and I've been physically in the embassy since that point in time. Uh, let, me, let me just kind of conclude with the most recent developments. On the 5th of February 2016, the UN announced its formal finding. Uh, I sued the states of the UK and Sweden uh, at the United Nations, and uh, I won, uh, and it was ruled that I should be released immediately and compensated. Uh, the UK then appealed uh, that ruling, uh, and it lost on the 11th of November. I see. And, and so uh, where does it stand now? Uh, where, what is the legal battle ahead at this point in time? I mean, it's a two-front battle. You have the U.S., and then you have this these trumped-up charges uh, from Sweden. No charges, Randy. No oh, charges. Right. I'm I sorry, trumped-up allegations? I've never been charged at any point in time. Okay. All right. So you've never been charged with anything is what that's the deal. You've never been charged. That's, I'm sorry that I said that, but they keep throwing that out there. And so why does Sweden yes. want you? Well, Sweden has shifted uh, in its position. So, so Sweden became well known in the this is the interesting story. I will try and get through it quickly. Uh, <laughs> going back Going back to the 1920s, Sweden entered into that period of uh, European uh, utopianism that was there both in the, on the Nazi uh, right uh, and that was present in the left. Uh, both those elements were strongly present in Sweden, in, including uh, the Nazi party. Sweden itself had a relatively new um, vision of democracy. It's not, if you look at its, its origins, it's not really part of the Western European cultural process. Introduced political parties about the turn of the century. Then when it entered into World War II, it allied with uh, Nazi Germany. Up until 44, when it saw that the Nazis uh, were going to lose, and then it started to uh, shift its alignment to uh, the United States. Uh, but it never properly denazified. There was no revolution or anything like that. And in the, uh, in the war period, Sweden became very rich. I'm not from Sweden, by the way. I'm an Australian, but I've become a bit of a Sweden nerd. Uh, in, in the war period, uh, Sweden became very rich uh, by breaking sanctions and setting up a lot of German fronts within Stockholm, uh, and shipping about 40% of all the iron ore uh, to the German uh, war machine. So it, it came out at the end of World War II with about two decades of advancement compared to the rest of Western Europe and was one of the uh, wealthiest countries in the, in the world of any size, uh, the, its nearest rival being the, the United States. So it leapt forward about 
10 years in terms of uh, economic development, and the rest of Western Europe went back about 10 years. The result is that uh, Sweden took on an appearance of uh, accelerated uh, modernity. And the utopian elements that had existed in the 1920s came together in this post-war period to produce not a classical social democracy, but something rather different. Uh, Sweden is the most oligarched uh, country in Western Europe. What does that mean? It means that just a few families control more of the wealth in the country than any other country uh, in Western wow. Europe. I had no so idea. These giant Swedish industrialists um, uh, were, were never uh, uh, stripped of their power by revolution uh, or liberation as a result of uh, kicking out an occupying force. Instead, a, a system of a merger between the industrialists, uh, the, old, the oligarchs, you would say, in a modern context, uh, the, the unions and the political parties occurred. And that ended up producing uh, what we would call a Swedish uh, social democracy. And that then became famous as something in, you know, as a kind of political phenomenon to be, to be envied. I think it's, looking back, it's really rather questionable how true that ever was. Uh, but by the 1980s, uh, it had shifted its, it had shifted its uh, position and started to uh, publicly ally itself with the West. But no one really cared uh, by that point in time. Under the surface, it had uh, entered into a secret uh, intelligence sharing agreement by 1954 uh, with the GCHQ in the United Kingdom and with the National Security Agency uh, in the United States. And that went to a, a mass surveillance uh, agreement in the, in the early 2000s. And the Swedish uh, military industrial complex, which is a big part of the Swedish economy, uh, sort of became very tightly integrated with the U.S. Uh, and U.K. Uh, supply chain. So Sweden as a, uh, a state, it has its problems like all states. It has some good things going for it, but it is not in any way uh, independent uh, from the United States, wow. unfortunately. Well, I thank you for that history lesson. I had no idea. I, I mean, I, I look back at Sweden in the 80s. Uh, John Pilger is on the other line. Uh, talking about Nicaragua, Olaf Palme uh, certainly helped out Nicaragua a lot, and that's the vision I have of Sweden back in the 80s, and I thought it was just recently they drifted on this right-wing uh, course. Um, but that's No, it's been, happening, it's been happening since at, at least 86 when Olaf Palme was assassinated right. uh, in Sweden. Yeah, but, I mean, there, there was a period of time, about five years really, where... Sweden was supplying about a quarter of the budget uh, of the ANC, not for very long, uh, and was also uh, taking a number of refugees for, uh, from Chile under Pinochet, routed through uh, its embassy system and so on. So it's interesting to think what that was about. Uh, Sweden historically is a, uh, a country of empire, but as the as the as Western Europe, other Western European countries uh, got bigger, it hasn't been able to 
kind of seriously um, invade countries out of its borders uh, for about 200 years now. But it, it does have a, a certain uh, uh, ideological, em- empirical uh, ambition from time to time. And that, and that has allied with uh, particular uh, other ideological uh, or geopolitical uh, tendencies in, in the rest of the world as time has gone by. But since the, since the late 80s, uh, it's been very much uh, in the embrace uh, of the United States. Um, that's uh, some analysis there. I told so they don't like to. They don't like to say it. They, I mean, I know they have this image of being some progressive uh, nation like Switzerland being neutral. Uh, but I, I got to move away from that because we have four minutes left here. This is moving very quickly. I, I we got less than four minutes. All right. So um, I have to ask. I have to the this this whole thing about Russia and trying to uh, vilify you as some agent of the Russians. It's complete garbage. What is your response to that? Well, it is complete garbage. I would publish more than six hundred thousand documents about uh, Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin. Many of those documents have gone on to legal court cases uh, and books have been written about the uh, Russian organized crime uh, as a result of our publication. So it's just complete nonsense. Uh, if you look at what the allegations are about our non-electoral publications, well, uh, about a year and a half ago, we published John Brennan's emails, the last Obama head of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, the allegation there that everyone doesn't say very much about it because it doesn't help them politically uh, is that those were hacked by a 16-year-old uh, boy uh, in the UK Midlands, uh, and he had a pal in the United States who's about, 20, about 22 uh, who helped uh, promote him. That's the allegation. Uh, and they've been formally, uh, formally charged. Our most recent publication about the Central Intelligence Agency, a very serious publication. In fact, it's the largest intelligence publication uh, in history, or will be by the time it's uh, complete. Definitely the largest uh, known intelligence leak in history. Uh, the allegation by the uh, by the U.S. government is that that originates from a contractor. They haven't worked out which one yet. They say. Uh, but that's the allegation. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's kind of, it's very boring in a way. It's the yeah, Democrats. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of really, it's obvious stuff. It's the Democratic Party normally on election loss would go through a hell of a recrimination game uh, and uh, see who was responsible for the loss uh, and purge them right. from their positions of influence and, re- and replace them with others. Right. That was a historical moment that the Democrats could have had. They uh, certainly on, could on have. The, my, my opinion is this. They, they, they could have had that. They could have had it. But they were successful in hyping up this Russian narrative and thereby distracting uh, from what would be the normal course of events. I would like to invite you back next week. Uh, this is just the beginning. I want to talk about Vault Number 7, uh, about Grasshopper. There's so much to talk about. We just barely broached uh, some of the things that are on my notes here. I want to thank uh, Julian Assange, uh, the greatest publisher, man of great integrity. John Pilger, one of the greatest, the greatest 
journalists around today. The two of you say goodbye to each other, and uh, we'll. Uh... Randy, I'd I'm not saying goodbye, goodbye to John. I'm not good, saying goodbye good to, to hear John. you. But Randy, I just want to say it's 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 Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that have returned honor to to journalism. Julian is a truth teller, and that's what has upset the those who continue what Goebbels called the big lie. Well, there you go. Excerpts from all three of our interviews with Julian Assange. Um, don't forget, coming up on October 16th, D.C. at the Tabard Inn and in New York City a week later on the 24th, October 24th, at the um, Theater 80 St. Mark's on St. Mark's Place in First Avenue. Great theater. Uh, Lorcan Otway and his wife, Jeannie, are really excited about this, and so am I. And we got great... Uh, great uh, comedians and speakers in both places. All right, and uh, October 1st, get out there for uh, Steve Donziger. I've been Randy Credico, and this has been Assange Countdown to Freedom on the Progressive Radio Network. Uh, next week, uh, we have Stefani Moriti and Nils Melzer. We're gonna go out here with the great uh, Roger Waters. This is him in London singing I wish you were here at an Assange rally there. And uh, see you soon. Thank you. So, so you think you can tell Heaven from hell Blue skies from pain Can you tell it from a cold steel ray Do you think until And if they get you to trade Your heroes for ghosts Hot ashes for trees And hot air cool breeze Cold comfort for change And the you exchange A walk on part of the war
Thank you.